Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We, uh, the elders, have been rotating through the book of 1 Timothy, uh, the first Sunday of every month, and uh, this Sunday at uh, falls upon me to work through a, a portion of uh, scripture here. And our text here is going to be out of First uh, Timothy chapter number 6, uh, verses 3 through 5. And so we'll read our text here this morning. Paul says to Timothy, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul has been instructing Timothy, who was Paul's own son in the faith, and Paul has been pouring his life into Timothy. Paul here is, he's in prison, and uh, Timothy was sent back now to go through these churches that Paul had planted and to bring structure and order uh, to these churches. Uh, we've seen a lot of that, uh, those instructions that he's given throughout the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, he's basically to pick up where Paul has left off. And from what we gather in this letter, Paul is uh, trying to help Timothy correct some things that were going on in a few of these churches. Most notably, uh, this uh, letter was written to Timothy when he was at the church at Ephesus. And this passage of Scripture, uh, Paul is warning Timothy of false teachers who were already in these churches that Paul had planted now, this is not the first time that Paul has warned Timothy about uh, false teachers in this uh, letter, 1 Timothy. He warns of the false teachers and false doctrine in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He urges Timothy to command the false teachers to stop teaching false doctrines. And also in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he warns of demonically inspired teachers who were forbidding marriage and certain foods. And we find warnings and rebukes about false teachers and teaching in almost every New Testament book of the Bible. They're in the Gospels, Paul's epistles, Peter and John's epistles, and even Jude. And it's a, it's a major danger for the church, and it was certainly a danger in Ephesus as well. In fact, in his farewell address to the elders at the church at Ephesus, Paul said in Acts 20, 28 through 31, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... 
fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. False teaching has been a threat in every age, including the present. In Matthew 7, 15 through 16, Christ said, Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. And he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. We must remember that false teaching is not just someone saying Jesus is not God or Jesus is not the only way to uh, salvation uh, or denying the resurrection. Yes, that is false teaching. But we need to remember that false teaching is any, any teaching that attacks the nature and character of God, who he is, and what God says in his word. In our day, there's more false teaching than there was back in Paul's day, I believe. Uh, and I believe this is true because of the access of the internet that we have today. Uh, you can download just about anything and everything you want. And I think this has really given false teachers a huge platform to reach people uh, that we would have never thought could uh, ever be reached before. And so the question must be asked, how can we be discerning as to not be led astray? How can we distinguish a false teacher from a true one? Well, Paul gives an answer in our scriptures here that uh, we just read. Now, I want to tell you, Paul's answer here is not the whole thing. It's, it's part of the whole, uh, because I believe uh, all throughout scripture that, that mentions about false teaching and false uh, teachers, uh, we get different glimpses of how to recognize false teaching and how to recognize uh, false teachers. And uh, Paul here, though, is exposing the false teaching and the false teachers that were prevalent uh, there in Ephesus where Timothy was. And I believe this answer that Paul gives is uh, very helpful uh, to us because if we heed its warning, if we heed its message, it will keep us and others from falling into false teaching or uh, listening to a false teacher. So this is what I'd like for you to take away from uh, with you this morning. False teachers are in it for the money rather than godliness. They're in it for the money rather than godliness. Let's take note here a few things in our text. Number one, their teaching does not agree with Jesus or godliness. Their teaching does not agree with Jesus or godliness. The main theme of 1 Timothy that Paul addresses over and over is how important doctrine is. I know we have people today that are just like, oh, doctrine, oh, you know, but listen, I can't tell you how important doctrine is to the health of the church. Unfortunately, this church at Ephesus, where Timothy was, had succumbed to false teaching and false doctrine. Uh, and Paul was addressing it to Timothy. Their doctrine was in error. Take note of how he addresses it. Notice the, notice the phrases that he uses. Uh, verse 3, he says, Different doctrine, sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That a, and then 
teaching that accords or conforms to godliness. Verse 4, they were, they were, they were quarreling about with words. Verse 5, and also those that were deprived of the truth. That word truth points to the content of their teaching. These false teachers had doctrine that was not in line with the scriptures. Now, what is doctrine? Doctrine is simply means teachings. The teachings of these false teachers had an effect on others in the church and how they lived their lives. Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor, theologian in the 1700s, once said this, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. In other words, what you think really matters because how you live is really based on what you think. Our theology, what we believe about who God is, what God says, what he does, of always will affect our philosophy, how we live our life. And so your theology will always affect your philosophy. And so sound doctrine, doctrine that, needs, that leads to spiritual health is really important. Wrong theology, wrong doctrine, wrong teaching leads to wrong living. Sad to say, but many churches are anti-theological today. Theology today in churches is pushed down, pushed aside in favor for motivational speeches, pep talks, and self-help techniques with a little scripture sprinkled in here and there to make us all feel good. Instead of scripture-driven, they are more seeker-sensitive-driven. It's so important that we hold to sound teaching and sound doctrine. Every time in history God has done something significantly spiritual, it has always been a revival of sound biblical teaching and doctrine. Always. You know, you may not even be aware of it, but you do have a theology. If I were to ask how many of you in here have uh, read a theological book recently... I'm sure probably some of you probably be like, no, not me. I haven't read any type of theological books um, at all. Uh, But believe it or not, you do have a theology. And your theology, to a large extent, determines how you behave. What you think about God, human depravity, sin, salvation, judgment, and other biblical themes uh, greatly affects how you live each day. In our day, the prevailing theology in America is mostly man-centered, heavily subjective and relative. And I'll explain what I mean by those statements. Man-centered, I mean some people believe that God exists to serve man. Man is at the heart of things. God, how they view him, is not really the sovereign, omnipotent, creator, all-powerful God, uh, but really... Uh, He is there to serve us, to serve what we want and what we desire. Uh, And so therefore, God is not the one who's in control. It's more of what I want and what I uh, desire. Uh, Some people view him sort of like a cosmic Aladdin genie. I was just talking to an individual yesterday. um, And uh, 
they said uh, that they viewed God more as a counselor, as a therapist. They said, God is my therapist, and he's whatever I want him to be. And I told that individual, no, I'm sorry, uh, that is uh, idolatry. That is not the God of the Bible. He's not your therapist, and he's not what you want him to be. Man is at the center, and man's happiness is foremost, and so the pitch is usually, do you have problems in your life, struggles, unmet needs? Well, just try Jesus then, right? Just give him a shot, and he'll, he'll take care of all that, uh, those problems and, and things. Uh, he'll meet all your needs and give you a happy life. The emphasis is always man is at the center rather than God, who is great and holy and a mighty God. And here's how this works out. You may have a guy who's uh, coming to church, and he professes to be a Christian, and uh, he's living this man-centered life. It's all about him. It's, uh, you know, he just looks to God for when he needs him. He's just a crutch. He's just, hey, uh, when, I, when I'm getting into a little bit of uh, hardship, a little trouble, I, I go to God. And so this is what uh, he's doing. And then what happens? Boy, really some catastrophe hits this man's life. It could be uh, loss of job. It could be his uh, wife leaves him. It could be a child dies. I mean, something very catastrophic happens. And uh, in all of this, this personal tragedy, what's his response? His life is falling apart, and then he's like, God, where are you? Right? Where, where'd you go? Um, kind of thinking that, you know, I've, I've been doing my part, been coming to church and trying to, to, you know, just show you how, you know, I really like what you're doing. And now God is not meeting his need. And so therefore, uh, he starts to question whether the fact that if God is real or if God really cares. Uh, but he never stops to question the fact that he is not judging his sin. He's not living for himself. He's, 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 li he's living for himself and not living for Christ. Uh, and he expects that God is like this Aladdin genie to just poof, you know, hey, here I am. What do you need? Oh, your life is a mess. Well, let me just fix it up for you, right? No, I'm sorry, that's not the God of the Bible. So wrong theology really determines how the person reacts when problems come. Another way that theology of our day is man-centered is through what is known as the prosperity teaching or preaching, which is basically summed up with God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, also known as name it and claim it. Over the years, uh, that false teaching has been repackaged or redistributed in different ways, uh, resold in various ways. One of the ways is through the little God's teaching. This type of teaching is mostly promoted by the word of faith, uh, movement, which teaches that humans are actually divine, created in the image of God. Not only do humans have a soul having dominion over the earth or living in relation with others, but they are in the same spiritual class as God, which in turn makes us little gods. And because of this teaching, the result is our words have creative power. And so if we say, God, you are going to do this, you are going to do this, because, hey, I have creative power with my words, and I can make it happen. And so, therefore, when we ask something of God in faith, he's compelled to refill the request because we ourselves are little gods. Again, this is very man-centered. Most American theology is not only man-centered, but it is also subjective. 
and relative. By subjective, I mean that it is feeling-oriented. People want to feel good, and they live by their feelings. They'll, they'll belong to a church or go on with the Lord as long as he helps them to feel good. And if they don't feel good, they'll try something else because good feelings are at the center. And again, that's man-centered. By relative, I mean that God is not the God revealed in his word and primarily through his son, Jesus Christ. The God who has certain attributes, the unchangeable, eternal God who has revealed himself to us. And his standards are not those that are revealed to us in his word. Rather, God is however you conceive him to be. And whatever you like. This is what I call Burger King theology, right? Have it your way. And so, you know, it's however you want to experience God. And so you got people that are like, well, you know, if you're into that God who judges sin and, you know, he demands righteousness and holiness and all that, and oh, that's fine with you, but I, I, like, I like my God to be a God of love and, and grace and mercy and, you know, stuff like that. So that's uh, what I mean by relative. And so they redefine God according to what they like and what they feel which is really a case of idolatry. So if we want to be able to recognize sound doctrine and theology and teaching from false teaching, what are the distinguishing marks? Well, note two ways that Paul uses to measure sound or healthy doctrine or teaching. Notice what he says, verse 3. Number one, sound doctrine centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine always points to the centrality of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. If you follow the preaching of Paul in his letters, you'll see the centrality of Jesus Christ in everything he says. He says, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord in 2 Corinthians 4.5. He says, Christ is all in all in Colossians 3.11. He says, we preach Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He says, we preach Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God, in 1 Corinthians 1.24. He says, we preach Christ in you, the hope of glory, in Colossians 1.27. And our aim, Paul says, in Colossians 1.28, is that we might present every man complete in Christ. And so these are the themes that Paul majored on. So Paul, whether he lived or died, said, my aim, my goal in life, or in death, is that Jesus Christ always might be exalted in my body. For me to live is Christ. And so Paul emphasized the centrality and the supremacy of Christ when all these other false teachers were promoting other things. And that's a good way to test sound theology. Does it point people to Christ? Or does it point people to themselves? Is it, do people get a view, a high, holy view of who Jesus is, or is it muddled? Is it, you can't really distinguish uh, who Jesus is. Sound theology does not center on man, but on God and his eternal purpose in Christ. Here's a second way that Paul says that we can recognize false teaching or uh, false doctrine. Sound doctrine conforms to godliness. Take a look again at verse 3. This verse here, he says, This different doctrine, and they do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. This verse can be translated, These teachings do not promote a godly life. 
The teachings that these false teachers are giving do not promote a godly life. It's all centered on man, your desires, what you want, what you need. Unfortunately, in this church at Ephesus, and likewise today in churches, there is teaching by individuals that does not agree with godliness as set forth through God's revealed word. Sound doctrine that conforms to godliness is not man-centered or subjective or relative, but it points people to God who is the standard for our behavior, for our character, because we are to be holy even as what? He is holy. What is godliness? What is that? Does that mean you go to church? Right? Boy, he's godly. He goes to church. What is godliness? Basically means conduct in line with God and his revealed truth, especially as revealed and taught by the Lord Jesus. Titus 1.1 sums this up for us very nicely. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So godliness is revealed to us in Scripture. It is not God, however you may experience Him or conceive Him to be or how you feel about Him and then live however you think you ought to live or should live. Rather, Jesus said, if you love me, what are you supposed to do? Keep my commandments. So he defined love by obedience. So whenever you hear someone promoting man-centered theology or subjective feel-good and relative Burger King type of theology, this is not sound and healthy doctrine. We must test the things people teach. We must ask, does it lead to godliness? Does it teach correctly who Jesus is as he is revealed in his word? Does it agree with the rest of scripture? Does it teach submission to God's words? Sadly, many people fall into the teaching of false prophets because simply they do not know their Bible. They do not know the word. They do not spend time in the word. They think it's, yeah, you know what? I can just kind of skate by here, right? Sorry, you are prime picking for false teachers and uh, false teaching. Ephesians 4.14 sums it up this way, Therefore they are tossed to and fro by all types of doctrines because they are spiritually immature children. Uh, And so we need to know what the Word says in order to recognize false teaching and not be swept in. Uh, by that. Here's the second thing that Paul mentions here about false teachers and false doctrine. He says these false teachers are prideful and stupid. They're prideful and stupid. Take note of how Paul describes them. Verse 4, he says, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It's interesting that these false teachers claim to have knowledge, right? Like, we have all this knowledge. We, we, and he says, no, they know nothing. He says they're so puffed up of, of having knowledge and, and uh, they apparently went into these great lengths to expound on different uh, meanings of various words, right? They're quarreling about with words and they're, they're, they have this craving for controversies, uh, maybe in the church or controversy about this or controversy about that. And, oh, we're going to sit around and discuss all these controversies and, and quarrel about with words, right? They claim to have all this knowledge, Yet Paul says they are puffed up and they know nothing. 
They probably loved to argue semantics. But Paul says that they acted out of conceit and they acted out of a way where they did not understand anything. He says they're puffed up. They're puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. These false teachers loved the following. They thrived on being up front and displaying their knowledge. They prided themselves on being the experts. William Barclay in his teacher's outline and study Bible gives an excellent comment about the pride of the false teacher. He says this, his first characteristic is conceit. His first aim is self-display. He de- his desire is not to display Christ, but to display himself. And there are still preachers and teachers who are more concerned to gain a following for themselves than for Jesus Christ. They are more concerned to press their own views upon people than they are to bring to men the word of God, end quote. Now take note of what Paul says they are puffed up with, conceit. The word conceited here can carry a wide range of meanings, but it literally means to be besmoked. It paints the picture of a room that is filled with smoke or hot air. You've heard the expression, he's full of what? Hot air? Yeah, that's it. He's full of conceit. He's full of pride. And it reveals that he's prideful and puffed up. This word conceit can also be used of someone who is blinded or foolish They cannot see on account of the smoke, and because of that, they carelessly wander around the room. So blinded are these individuals that they become incapable of thinking properly. And this is how Paul is using this term here. He says they are puffed up with conceit, and they understand nothing. In our vernacular, they're stupid. Or as Forrest Gump would say, stupid is as stupid does. And so this is what happens when people replace the clear teachings of God's word with man-centered, subjective, and relative feelings. Or relative, uh, how you want to experience God, or how you think God should experience. They're puffed up, and they are stupid. False teaching is usually tied up with man-centered theology. Wherever you will find man-centered theology, you will find pride and stupidity. Always. It's there. As where godly teaching always, always, always does what with our pride? It humbles our pride. It doesn't exalt us, right? It humbles us. It always brings us to the foot of the cross where no one can boast. It always brings us down so we can see our sinfulness, so we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. The false teaching of our day wants to build ourselves up and make us feel good and have good self-esteem, and pride is tied right in with building up man. Scripture is aimed at humbling even the best of men and exalting God as above all else. The reason this man-centered theology and feel-good stuff thrives is because, really, we all like to feel good, don't we? We all enjoy that. And we like to feel good without dealing with our sin, but it's a superficial solution, isn't it? It really doesn't take care of the problem. Unless God takes the scalpel of his word and he digs in and gets below to really the heart of the matter, which is our sinful pride in our heart, and deals with that, boy, we're just going to be 
uh, duped. We're just going to be swept up. And so we'll go with whatever teaching will make us feel good and we never really deal with our sin. And we need to be stripped of our self-reliance. We need to be stripped of any pride or boastfulness in ourselves and all of us need to come to the cross where all are on level ground and we are all sinners and Jesus is our Savior and we look to him and exalt him only. So Paul says they are prideful and stupid. Here's the third thing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and arguments that lead to discord in the church. Paul continues to give us some more descriptions of how to recognize them. He says, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. An unhealthy craving. Isn't that interesting? An unhealthy craving. Do you see what he's doing here? Paul is actually drawing a contrast between the cravings of these foolish and stupid teachers who know nothing at all and the good and healthy doctrine that brings godliness. False doctrine and false teaching is unhealthy, but he says that these false teachers actually crave unhealthy doctrine and teaching. I know some of you parents in here would not dare give in to your child's desire to exclusively live off of Captain Crunch. Right? We want our children to eat healthy. And so we wouldn't give in to that because we know that that's unhealthy. And that's exactly what these false teachers here are doing. These individuals crave and pursue what is unhealthy. Notice what the unhealthy craving is for. Paul lists two things. The unhealthy craving is for controversy and arguments. Controversy and arguments. The false teacher's pride leads them to an unhealthy interest in controversies and verbal disputes. Unhealthy can literally be translated as sick. These people are sick. They are consumed with controversies over words. I believe we have a great picture of what this looked like in the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.4 that the false teachers in Ephesus were devoted to myths and endless genealogies. They were just all about that. And instead of advancing God's work, they promoted useless speculations. And because of their unhealthy craving for controversy and arguments, the end result is what? Discord is sown in the church. It's important to remember that false teaching does not agree with godly teaching or lead to godliness. Therefore, it only leads to pride, controversy, and specifically, discord. God's word is quite a bit to say about those who stir up discord in the church. Let me read a few of these verses to you. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These are people that go from person to person saying things and sowing discord. 
They might be casting doubt on a certain person's reputation, but they go from person to person, sowing discord, saying little things here and there. Romans 16, 17 through 18 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Paul says, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Titus 3, 9 through 11 says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, Paul says, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice how their discord is evidenced in the church here. Okay? Paul gives us five ways that how they behave this way. Number one, false teachers are prone to envy. So this discord is shown in their behavior as they are envious in the church of others. Envy means resentment of another people's gifts or successes. Because false teachers are prideful, they only want to see their own success and hate it when others succeed. How different from the way that Christ taught, right? He said, he who wants to be great must be what? Servant of all. Matthew 23, 11. Secondly, false teachers are prone to dissension. This can also be translated as strife. They just stir up strife from person to person. They say things, do things that cause strife within the church. And really, it's a spirit of competition and contention. Thirdly, false teachers are prone to slander. They abuse others by false, damaging statements about another's reputation or character. They say things to others to cast doubt about that person. Fourthly, false teachers are prone to evil suspicions. Where love is constantly seeking the good of others, they instead constantly think of the wrong of others. And how this person did this or this person did that and their evil suspicions. Fifthly, false teachers constantly have friction with others, or they constantly are bickering back and forth with others in the church. Now, while these descriptions are true of false teachers, we must realize that everything that Paul lists there are the fruits of the sinful nature, is what we saw in Galatians 5:19 through 21. Uh, because he describes the acts of the flesh as enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And I believe that when we ourselves are not abiding in the word of God, we ourselves are prone to walking in the fruit of the flesh, right? The lust of the flesh. We're, we're prone to living that way as well. And so we need to make sure that uh, we are doing what we should be doing and being in the word and instead of loving, forgiving, and covering other sins, um, if we're not in the word, we will be constantly slandering, uh, being envious, and fighting with one another.
One of the ways we can mark a false teacher is that their ministries and relationships will be marked by constant discord instead of peace. While false teachers are marked by doctoral controversy and discord, true teachers lead the body of Christ into unity. Here's the fourth thing that Paul makes mention of here. They are apostates. Paul further describes what these false teachers really are. Notice how he describes them again in verse 5. He says these uh, people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They're depraved in mind or corrupt minds and deprived of the truth. Paul is actually using these two descriptions to describe someone who is apostatized from the faith. These false teachers are not truly born again. They never were born again. They're in the church. Jesus tells us about this, right? There's the wheat and there's the tares, right? They're in the church. And they're led into false teaching. Let me give you a couple of scriptures to help us understand these phrases. Uh, Romans 8, 7, in describing an unbeliever's mind, Paul says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 1 Corinthians two fourteen, in reference to the uh, receiving spiritual truth, Paul says, The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now take a look at that word deprive there. It, it comes from the word aposterio, which means to steal, to rob, or deprive. The way Paul uses this word indicates someone or something has pulled them away from the truth, from what the truth is revealed in Scripture. And so they've apostatized from the truth. These teachers might have been raised in the church. Maybe even they were an elder. But evidently, they were led into false teaching and away from the truth. They became apostates. Again, I call to remembrance Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29 through 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. He's addressing the elders. He says, from among your own selves, the elders, what will happen? Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Apostasy, falling away from the faith, marks false teachers. They have corrupt minds and at some point were robbed of the truth. False teachers are identified by apostasy is where true teachers are identified by their faithfulness to God. So let's put this in the simplest terms possible. Paul is stating that such individuals, those who teach differently than what Scripture clearly teaches and live in defiance to it, are unregenerate apostates. They claim the name of Christ, yet they teach and live in direct opposition to Christ. Jesus said of these people in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." You know, sometimes it's very easy to spot a false teacher. I mean, sometimes they're just like out there, right? We can, we can spot them. But a majority of the time, they are very hard to spot. Remember Jesus said that they come as wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. They're among us. They're here. 
Proverbs 26, 23 through 26 gives us some interesting things to ponder and how we can hide what we truly believe and feel towards others. Let me read these verses to you here in uh, Proverbs uh, 26, 23 through 26. He says, Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, don't believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Through his hatred, though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. You see, we have to remember that false teachers are deceivers. In the book of Jude, uh, there, uh, Jude mentions some interesting things about uh, the false teachers. And he says here in verse 3 uh, through 4, he says these false teachers, uh, here in Jude, he says, for certain people, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you of who Jesus is, right? Later on, he says in verse 12 about them, he says, these are hidden reefs. These false teachers are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. He describes what these false teachers really are. He says they are Late autumn trees, when you look at a late autumn tree, is it producing anything? No. And he says of the tree, he says that uh, they are fruitless. There's no fruit there. Not only that, but they are twice dead and they are uprooted. They are good for nothing, he says. But he says these false teachers are hidden reefs. They're very hard to detect. But then when the ship runs aground on them, you'll know it. So we've got to be very, very careful about this. So the question has to be asked, why do they bother teaching at all? Why do false teachers bother teaching at all? Well, Paul sums this up for us. They're in it for the money. That's it. They're in it for the money. Notice what he says here. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They're in it for the money. That's all they care about. Paul deals with their motive. It is not to glorify God or to build the kingdom of heaven. Oh, they may say that. They may talk that. But they're really in it for the money. They're in it to make a fast buck. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain or profit. False teachers abound to make a buck off of unsuspecting individuals. You don't have to look far to find them. All you got to do is uh, turn on the Blasphemer Network or uh, TBN. And uh, you'll witness a whole lineup of charlatans that are there to just try to get money out of you, you know? Um, these are wolves among sheep and should have their hides really tacked up on the nearest barn door. Sadly, many pastors and ministries promote themselves with the primary goal of making money. Obviously, those types of false teachers are very easy to spot, but it's the ones who are the hidden reefs, the ones whose ministry looks great, their leader is dynamic, they're charming, they're charismatic, their ministry is polished and looks like it's producing fruits. 
They have the crowds and the numbers to back it up. But examine not what it looks like on the outside. Examine their teaching. What are they saying? That's what's important. Does it agree with what is revealed in Scripture? Does what they say appeal to man-centered, subjective, and relative theology? Does it end with promoting themselves and making a buck? If so, you need to run away as fast as you can. Be careful of teachers and ministries that focus on personal gain and not God himself. And it's interesting, Paul will later on say in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is actually great gain. And so true teachers are not motivated by profit. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.